Well, that glorious, glorious hymn that we sang is a sermon in and of itself. It's a powerful thing to sing of the cataclysmic events that will transpire at the second coming of Jesus Christ and to declare, it is well with my soul. It must mean that we have a greater possession than anything found in this world. To say that we want for him to roll back the, the heavens like a scroll. The trumpet will sound, he will descend, it is well with my soul. What a, what a marvelous thing to sing and to declare. Let's, uh, let's pray together one more time as we approach this text of Scripture. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an awesome thing it is for us to declare that it is well with our soul that your Son return. And so we sing as with the, the Apostle Paul, his words that he wrote in Corinthians, Maranatha, come, Lord. And our hearts, Lord, are oftentimes filled with the discouragement of this mundane existence, this pilgrimage, this life, as it were, in exile as strangers on this earth. But Lord, refocus us again today and cause us to remember our calling. Cause us to remember that we are, in fact, pilgrims on the way. That we are, in fact, sojourners that are traveling through a, sta a strange land but one day we will reach our heavenly destination. So remind us of that, Lord, as we grow weary at times. Remind us of that, Lord, when we lose sight as to why it is that we're doing what we're doing. Remind us that our, our whole life's ambition should be to store our treasure in heaven. Give us, in other words, an eternal perspective to be able to rise above and to transcend the temporal, the visible, into the invisible and into the eternal. Launch us into the heavenly realms as we focus our heart, our minds, and our lives on Christ who has done it all, who's opened up the gateway to heaven, the door to paradise. And so, Lord, we pray that as we look at our Savior's great work, as we consider His life, His death, His exaltation, His triumph, and His vindication, that we would see ourselves to be His fellow heirs, His co-heirs in the kingdom of God. We pray for your help now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We are quickly approaching um, the section of Scripture here, or at least the section of Hebrews, that begins to, um, begins to give us some very direct admonitions for how we ought to live our lives. Matter of fact, if you consider the, the context of the argument of Hebrews, you would note that going all the way back to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, to the very place in the scriptures that we find ourselves now in chapter 10 verse 11 it is not until verse 19 that the author of scripture finally says therefore turning the tables on us and going from the indicative to the imperative from what is to what ought to be and i sat there scratching my head and thinking how often do i take the the argument structure of Hebrews, basically the arguments that Hebrews makes in the letter of Hebrews, how often do I develop, after all, how often do I gaze at the Melchizedekian priesthood of Christ in order to know how to live on Monday? <laughs> but that is precisely what the author of Hebrews is telling us. That this is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has done. Therefore, live in this way. That's the way it works in all of, all of the letters of the New Testament. Basically, they have that basic indicative imperative structure. 
I think of Ephesians, the first three chapters are all committed to who you are in Christ, what Jesus has done, how he has broken down the dividing wall of separation between Jew and Gentile, and how he is collecting for himself a new race, a new humanity in Christ. And then, on the basis of three chapters of expositing the glorious work of Jesus Christ, then the author begins to exhort us as to how to live. Live this way. Wives, live this way. Husbands, live this way. Children, live this way. Workers, employees, uh, own, uh, 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 store, uh, you know, uh, uh, employers, live this way. In light of the government, live this way. In light of the, 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 the principalities and the powers around us, live this way. But see, it's all based on the foundation of doctrine. Therefore, every single one of us, I want to challenge you all today, every single one of us ought to endeavor to be consistently, habitually, and constantly growing and refining and fine-tuning our theology of the person and the work of Jesus Christ in our lives. Because according to the Bible and based on its promises, it ought to influence us to be better Christians to put it simply. And that's exactly what we have here in the book of Hebrews. And this time, we really, when we come to the work of Jesus, as it is displayed in the book of Hebrews, we are reaching something of a climax of the letter. Uh, You know that, for example, because If you go back to chapter 1 of the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews opens with the enthronement of the priest king of God in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 where he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. And in order to substantiate that, to prove that, the author of Hebrews, watch this, verse 13, he quotes... Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now turn to chapter 10 again, because the author of Hebrews then brings in this final climactic uh, 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 point or or argument, or this is what he's saying is that Now this high priest who has made his atonement, he has moved beyond his earthly session into his heavenly session. And to reiterate that, what does he cite? Verse verse, uh, 13 of Hebrews 10, sit down at my, he says, uh, after he made a sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies were made a footstool for his feet. So once again, you get Psalm 110. Do you know that Psalm 110 is the most often cited psalm in all of the New Testament. Matter of fact, it is the most often cited Old Testament passage in all of New Testament literature. Did you know that? It is a psalm that we should all endeavor to learn. Maybe if you're Trish, like Trish, you'll memorize it, put a little jingle to it, and memorize it. It really is a psalm that we ought to master. Because the apostles came back time and time and time again to this psalm. It was Psalm 110. Isn't that fascinating? Huh. Kind of makes you wonder why. Why Psalm 110? Why not Psalm 1? (laughs) Blessed is the man who does not, you know, walk in the way of the sinner and sit in the seat of the scornful, you know, uh, you know how it goes. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he will meditate day and night. Why not that great psalm? Or why not Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Are so many great psalms. Why? Psalm 110, that the apostles, like that was their like pet psalm. <laughs> Hopefully we hope to unearth that. Let me begin here by looking at what I believe is going on in the book of Hebrews in terms of the person and work of Jesus Christ by simply stating this, that the whole Bible 
is surrounding the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, Quickly turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. To, To show you the burden of this, the centrality of this, how emphatic this is for the the apostles. Look at the way that the apostle Paul speaks of the gospel. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And then in verse 2, when he says, which he promised. Now that's the gospel, the gospel of God which He promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning what? Sinners who have been forgiven? That's not primary. That's not first and foremost. First, the gospel is about Jesus Christ before it is about sinners It is about the sinless Son of God, which He he promised concerning His Son, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh. Now, now, watch this, verse 4. And declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. What's going on there? I'm suggesting that the Apostle Paul is doing the same thing that the book of Hebrews is doing in taking us from the humility of Christ to the exaltation of Christ and how that defines everything with respect to God saving His people. It is the movement from earth to heaven. Or if you want to get really technical, from heaven to earth, back to heaven. That changes everything in our lives. Everything. Uh, It changes our lives. It changes the, the, the history of the Bible. It changes the covenant arrangement of God. It changes the world. Now turn with me to back to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9. Just to show you the cataclysmic nature of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The humility and the exaltation. This is what theologians call the dual estate of Christ. His state of humility and his state of exaltation. Look at Hebrews 9. Verse 23, as he is contrasted with the repetitious nature of the old covenant priests, he says he did not come to offer that type of sacrifice under that kind of priesthood. He says otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, watch this now. This is a particular phrase found in the book of Hebrews, unique to Hebrews. Now, once at the consummation of the ages... He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. That is His humility, His lowliness. Uh, We could put it this way. His death is the high point of His humility. Pardon the pun. His death is the high point of His lowliness in this world. But it doesn't end there. Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. What's verse 27 saying? It's not just for, it's not, that verse is not just for evangelism. <laughs> that verse is Christological. And what that verse is saying is Jesus identifies with us in death and resurrection ultimately. Look at verse 28. So Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin, meaning He will not come again to deal with sin, already dealt with that. 
But he will return a second time for salvation. For who? For those who eagerly await him. That's exactly what's going on here with Christ in chapter 10. He is going from a lowly estate to an exalted estate. God is taking his prophet, priest, and king. And after he has accomplished redemption, then he ascends into his exaltation. The gospel begins with Christ. The gospel is about, or as Paul says, concerning the Son of God. That is what the gospel is about. It is through his death and exaltation that he has won for us redemption and that he looks to reward us with an eternal inheritance. Uh, Back to chapter 9, beginning in verse 11. Look at this. Same ideas. But when Christ, uh, Hebrews 9, 11, but when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place, that's heaven, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. That idea that he obtained eternal redemption just simply means this. Jesus purchased something for us. He earned something. He merited something. He procured something for us. And here's the for us part, verse 15. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that since death has taken place for the the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. In other words, he satisfied what the first covenant demanded. And now that he's done that, watch this, those who have been called, there is the emphasis on election, they may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Why did Jesus go through what he went through? He went through it so that He can grant to us an eternal inheritance. After all, that is what the prophets spoke of. When Paul says God spoke through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, I think Paul is thinking of, well, of course, the entire Old Testament, but I think there are some high points. And one of the high points is Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, the suffering servant of God, he comes, he suffers in our place. And then, as Isaiah 53 goes on to say in verses 11 and 12, and then God will see and be satisfied with his crushing. And God will see and he will reward him. And he will actually end up dividing the booty with the strong. In other words, God is going to so reward the Father rewarding the Son and the Son sharing the spoils of His spiritual war with us in His kingdom as co-heirs with Him who is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. I tell you what, right now, I need to know that I belong to, that I am connected to spiritually, mystically, inseparably connected to one who sits on the throne of the majesty on high when we are being told your daughter is going to now have to share a restroom with a grown man. I want a Christ on the throne. To know that this is not my kingdom, this is not my world. And I thought, why in the plan (laughs) would God ordain that the church be subjected to such trifling, I, I, I run out of, you know, adjectives for this. Why would we have to go through this diabolical, what the Apostle Paul calls the present evil age. And the conclusion I came to, the scholarly conclusion that I came to was, it's not about me. In other words, my comfort and convenience in Christianity is not the main point of it all. 
It is that God is collecting for himself a new humanity comprised of every tribe and tongue and nation around the world. And in the process, we might have a little persecution even here in America. I saw what was going on there and I thought, okay, that is tough. You might not be able to go to a certain store anymore because of these new psychotic laws that they're implementing. And do you know what the story that I read right after I read that? And I was like, man, well, how could they do that? This is not the America I grew up in. And then right after that, I read the story of a young woman in China who was buried alive by the Chinese government because she was the pastor's wife. And she dared to protest the demolition of churches in China. So they took her, they put her in a pit, and buried her alive. Why is it that God ordains the suffering of His people? Because the comfort of His people in this present evil age is not the point of the story. We are not meant to live here forever uninterrupted, where we can just do our thing and go with the flow and make the most of all the good things that God is surrounding us with. Oh, thank God for His His common grace. Thank God that you you can experience a temporal flourishing in this society. But when that flourishing is taken away from you, don't panic. It was never part of the program for you to have it Forever. Don't panic. That's the point of Hebrews. Look at Hebrews 11. We're going to get more into this, but look at Hebrews 11. You want to be great in the kingdom of God? You might have to feel like this. Right? Hebrews 11.13 says nothing new what we're going through. Okay, so they didn't have gender-neutral bathrooms back in the days of the patriarchs. But that doesn't mean that they felt at home in this place any more than we do. 13, all these, all these great Old Testament people, they died in faith without receiving the promises, meaning they didn't come to full consummation. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. Is that where we are today? Can we honestly say that is our confession? That we are comfortable as exiles and aliens in this world? Or are we so intent on trying to snuggle in and nestle in to this present evil age and to try as hard to make Christianity kind of look with what's going on everywhere around it. I tell you, when I go on the Christian post, all I see is pastor after pastor, ministry after ministry, church after church, artist after artist, Christian actor after Christian actor, and everybody in anything trying to look like a sanitized version of the world. I wonder, do they confess that they are strangers and exiles in this world? It looks like they're just a a redux of what the world is doing. God did not send His Son to die a brutal death on the cross and then exalt Him to the right hand of the majesty on high so that we would seek majesty here. Because it's not going to be found here. The humility of Christ tells us that we are saved for a greater purpose. The exaltation of Christ assures that that purpose will come to pass. He saves us from our sin. Jesus raises from the the dead. He is exalted to the right hand of, of the majesty on high. And now, look at what Hebrews is saying that Jesus is doing. He is waiting Look at verse 13. After saying, every priest stands daily, they're ministering the same offerings, the same sacrifices, they can never take away sin. 
But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God, basically saying, mission accomplished. And then it says, watch this, verse 13, waiting. Jesus is waiting. I like little things like that. (laughs) Jesus is waiting for something. I like that. And what's he waiting for? He's waiting from that time onward that the fulfillment of Psalm 110 would come to pass until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Our Lord Jesus, part of what he's doing right now is that he is not only bringing in his people from the four corners of the earth, but he is also justly and sovereignly subjecting his enemies to himself. That's why, have you ever wondered, why do so many people reject the gospel? Even on a logical level, doesn't it just make perfect sense? Listen, you have nothing to offer. God grants you everything in Christ. Deal? And what do they say? Um, I think I'd rather go to hell, thanks. I think I'd rather prefer a piece of fruit to the infinite glory of God. The insanity of sin. It is maddening when you think about what the world is doing. And this is why the Apostle Paul, I think, he was even encouraged in the fact that as an evangelist, as a missionary, he understood that as the gospel flowed in and through him, two things were happening simultaneously all the time so that evangelism is always a win-win situation. You never lose, so you never get discouraged. Oh, you might weep for the culture, but don't get discouraged from an eternal perspective. You are a winner. Because Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 16 to 17, that the gospel has two aspects. You are either the aroma of life to life or death to death. That means to some, the very message that you carry reeks of death. It is the ultimate buzzkill. It is the ultimate, you know, it is the, it is the ultimate uh, uh, um, sort of blockade to all of their ambitions in this world. And, and, and you represent a death-like aroma. And that's consistent with their destiny to death. But to others, you represent an aroma of life leading to life. And so when people repent and they get saved, it's because by the sovereign grace of God, what one person smelled in your message to be something death-like, another person detected life itself. And that, that, that change in them, that distinction in them, wrought by the grace of God, produces a destiny of eternal life. Life to life. Death to death. That's why God is subjecting all things to His Son. All of his enemies. Now, let's, let's stop for a second. I thought, you know what? I better circle the word enemy and define that. Who are his enemies being subjected to him? Well, we know the big ones. Satan, he is an enemy of Christ. And he is being put in subjection to him. Matter of fact, we are already told that in Hebrews chapter 2, we're already told that Jesus did this. In verse 14, it says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, Hebrews 2.14, He Himself likewise, He partook of the same, talking about becoming a man. And He says, For what purpose? That through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death. That is the devil. Fascinating verse. Fascinating. What does it mean that the devil has the power of death? So the devil can just kill at will? Certainly not. If you synthesize the theology of the Bible, it's certainly, uh, 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 I think it issues forth in this, that the devil is a pawn. 
in the hand of a sovereign God. That he must always and at all times seek permission for what he is able to do. He may have a long leash, but he's still on a leash. He might be able to afflict the children of men, but he cannot do that aside from the sovereignty of God. But this is the other thing, is that the enemies are not just Satan and demons, absolutely. Colossians chapter 2, absolutely. Every demonic force has been beaten by the cross. But on top of that, this would also include all of those who would rebel against God's law, God's Son, and the Gospel. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Because what we're seeing is the subjugation not only of Antichrist and Antichrist influence, but those who follow and live their lives under the influence and the sway and the persuasion and the opinion of an Antichrist spirit. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. This is the mystery of lawlessness. It is already at work. And what that means is that even though I believe in a person, Antichrist, capital A, a personification of all evil that I believe one day will descend on this planet in some form or fashion, but there is also a principle of lawlessness that is already working now. We don't need to wait for Tim LaHaye. It's already happening now. <laughs> the, the, the Antichrist spirit is everywhere. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. The whole world is under the sway of the evil one. After all, how does a world conclude that just because a guy who's who's missing some bolts up there in the head, wants to strap on a skirt, should have the right to go into a bathroom stall with a nine-year-old girl, maybe your daughter. How does a society get there mentally? How does that happen? It happens not because they're reckless and they just don't know what they're doing. It happens because there is an antichrist spirit that is influencing everything around us. Brothers and sisters, two things happened this week, right? Prince died, and bathrooms were, in some places of the world, rendered gender neutral or gender fluid. And so we had two gender questionably person, and then a gender neutral thing being foisted upon us and Prince is hailed as an icon, a hero, a legend, a star, a, a demigod. You know, my wife and I were watching the news. We could barely watch even, the, even some of the, the, the clips that they were showing about his life. It was so wretched. It was so debauched. It was so sensual. It was so wicked. Uh, this is his legacy, and the Word of God says that no sexual, immoral person will be able to enter the kingdom of God. I don't care that you sold over a hundred million albums. On the day of judgment, it will come to dust. And the Bible says that they will be put to shame. Shame. But our society louds that sort of lifestyle. It idolizes it. But right here, we're told this is all owing to an antichrist system, an antichrist spirit. Watch this now. It says that the mystery of lawlessness is already of work. Only he who restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Possibly the Holy Spirit removed, removes his restraining influence on the world. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth to bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That's Revelation 19, the destruction of the Antichrist. That is, the one whose coming is in accordance with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. You think it's bad now. You think it's bad now. You wait until God unleashes the full-scale Antichrist influence on this planet. We're not there yet. I don't believe. He says, And with all deception of wickedness for those who perish. Listen to this now, folks. 
because they did not receive. Now watch this very, very carefully. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10. They did not receive what? Christianity at large? No. Religious things, Jesus talk, Christianese? No. They did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And can you imagine a postmodern culture thrown into the frying pan with an antichrist spirit? We already live in a culture that is incapable of loving the truth. They don't just not love the truth, they hate the truth, right? And there's no such thing as truth. Oh, and by the way, that's not true either. This is the insane, upside-down, backwards, twilight zone world that we live in. You feel like a stranger yet? Feel like an exile? Feel like a pilgrim going through a strange land yet? I mean, how much more Looney Tunes does think, do things need to get? But Psalm 110 is precisely about this, that all of this mess and chaos will be brought under the sovereignty of, G, of God's priest king that he has exalted. Turn with me to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Oh, I hope this gives you as much hope as it gave me. Psalm 110 is glorious for many, many reasons. But let's read it together. I want you to see that what God is doing in Psalm 10 is several things. He is foreseeing a messianic fulfillment to the Davidic kingdom, and he's also talking about the subjugation of God's enemies underneath his feet, and he's also saying that this will be accomplished by one who is also a priest. That's remarkable. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. I think that that basically brings in a principle, an idea that even right now, in the present darkness, even now, Christ is reigning through His people spiritually. He is ruling in our hearts. His kingdom is growing and expanding, and His kingdom is, is prevailing, and the kingdom of darkness will not, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. You say all that in that verse? Yeah, I think so. Verse 3. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of, the of day of your power. There's a change in the covenant people of God where they freely of their own heart, freely from the heart, they, they, they gladly align themselves with the Davidic king to come. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. How is this all going to happen? The emergence of a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. That's how it's going to happen. Verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. Wow. Wow. This is why, by the way, the global powers are united in an antichrist disposition against Christianity. Because they know, and they're not ignorant to the fact that part of Christianity entails that our allegiance is to a king that will shatter the head of every other king. It is the, the great king, the king of kings, right? And he will judge among the nations. He will fill, their, fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over the broad country. And look at verse 7. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. What? Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now, what's verse 7 saying? In other words, this king, after he conquers and defeats his enemies, will be refreshed. He will be satisfied with his justice and his wrath. It will be effortless. What you see is Psalm 10 leaves us with a picture of a priest king who is casually drinking the water of the brook, satisfied, almost passively, enjoying his conquest. This is who Jesus Christ is, and that is what he will do. Now, I've gone way over time on that first one, so let's move to the second point. Not just the humility and the exaltation of Christ, but also as a, 
as a consequence to Jesus' sacrifice, the people of God are also brought to perfection. Now, that's something the Old Covenant could not do. You remember? Look at chapter 10, verse, back in Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 4. It is impossible. That's a big deal. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's a massive dilemma. How do we overcome the dilemma? Well, it will be overcome by verse 14 of chapter 10. For by one offering He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. There are several things going on here. This verse, verse 14, gives us the means, the fact, and the result of the perfection of the believer. First, the means. Jesus' sacrifice is the means by which we will be definitively sanctified. In other words, it means we'll be consecrated. Once for all, we will be qualified to be in the presence of God. Once for all time, we will be given the ability, the authority, the right to enter in to the presence of God. But it also gives us the fact of the perfection of the believer. And this fact is established by the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Did you see that? Verse 15. Watch this. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, that's huge, the Holy Spirit testifies saying and then he quotes he goes back into a quotation of jeremiah's prophecy in jeremiah 31 this is the covenant i will make with them after after those days says the lord i will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind i will write them then he says and their sins and their lawless deeds i will remember no more that is the meaning of definitive sanctification that god positionally removes and decides not to remember your sin anymore as it were in other words your sin is removed it's no longer an issue this gospel is too good to be true not just that your past sins are forgiven, dear brothers and sisters, your present sin, your future sin, I know it sounds dangerous to say that you can sin tomorrow and you are already forgiven. But Paul makes it very clear that does not mean go out and sin. If you do that, you manifest that you are a slave. So you want to tweak that in an antinomian direction and you will find yourself right back in the state of sin that Romans says you have been freed from. You cannot trifle with an antinomian interpretation of the grace of God. Does the grace of God teach us that we should sin because grace will abound anyway? By no means, God forbid, in no way, Paul says, as Titus says, is the grace of God that teaches us to deny ungodliness. And so it is through this, this repetition of the, of the prophecy to Jeremiah that, that the author of Hebrews is now saying that we have been covenantally been made right with God. I want to point out two things here, two things quickly. Number one, notice that the Spirit is speaking in the text. Isn't that remarkable? He says here that the Spirit speaks. You know, Hebrews is um, interestingly unique in this because in multiple times of Hebrews, the whole Trinity is credited with speaking the words of Scripture. In other words, in Hebrews chapter 1, we found out that it was the Father of our Lord Jesus who spoke long ago in many ways, and in these last days, the Father has spoken through His Son. But we're also told in Hebrews 2 and in Hebrews chapter 10 that Jesus speaks in Scripture. Just look back at chapter 10, verse 5. It says about Jesus, when He comes into the world, He says, and then he cites or he quotes a psalm to prove 
to prove that it is in fact Christ. Psalm 40, verse 6, to prove that Christ is speaking. And now we're told here in Hebrews chapter 10, again, that the Spirit is speaking in the text. He did the same thing in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 10. It was the Spirit speaking in the text. Now, I want you to notice one other thing. Notice the words of, of Hebrews 6, uh, 10, 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them. If you go back to Jeremiah 31, that's not what it says. He is paraphrasing. Even if you go back to uh, Hebrews chapter 8, uh, beginning with uh, verse 10, that's not what it says. They're, they're, not, they're not the same. In verse 10 here and in Jeremiah in the Old Testament, this is what it says. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. For some reason, the author of Hebrews decided to alter and paraphrase the translation from the original Hebrew text to say, this is the covenant that I will make with them. So who is the them? I will make the argument that the them is anyone who trusts in the finished work of Jesus Christ is a partaker of the new covenant. It is no longer about whether or not you are connected to ethnic Israel. It is now a matter of whether you are connected to messianic Israel, to Jesus Christ, the true Israel of God. That will define whether or not you are in God's kingdom whether or not you are in covenant relationship with God. And then look at the glorious promise. Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. What does the exaltation of Christ mean? He sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What that means is that our sins forgiven. You can bank on it. His, the sins have been removed. He doesn't remember them anymore. What's the result? Let me quickly move to the last aspect of this text. And that is that there is now a permanent removal of the old covenant sacrifices. Look at verse 18. Come on, stay with me for just a couple more minutes. Verse 18 says, Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Verse 18 is important for two reasons. Number one, it closes the argument that he started in chapter 8, verse 1. Number two, it now prepares us for what the author is going to say regarding apostasy in verse 10. Turn with me to chapter 10, verse 26, to show you this. That what the author of Hebrews probably has in mind is Jews who are tempted to go back to the old covenant in search of a sacrifice. And so what he says here is this. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, that is the gospel, that is what Jesus did, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. I told a young Jewish boy at, uh, at UNT a couple weeks ago who was trying to say that I'm Jewish, I believe in Yahweh, I believe in the Torah. I said, because of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, God has left you with only one option. Either believe in His sacrifice or have no recourse and have no ability to make any atonement for your sin whatsoever. So your sin is on your head to this very moment because you have forsaken the only sacrifice that God has provided for the removal of your sin. That's why Jewish people are not in the covenant. That's why the new covenant is not with ethnic Jews, strictly speaking. But it is with Jew or Gentile who is connected to Jesus Christ and who has the fullness of forgiveness of sins because of his or her connection to Jesus Christ. Again, what's going on here is that, Jesus, is that the author of Hebrews is giving the worshiper hope. And that hope is only found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. What's the application to everything that's gone on to this point? Go back to chapter 10, verse 19 in closing to show you that what should result from this, my dear 
brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, is an elevation in your spiritual life. It is a, a, it is a moving in. It is a deepening of communion with God. It is a newfound boldness that should be more present in you than with anybody else because now we have the fullness of revelation, the fullness of what Christ did. Therefore, the only legitimate response is confidence. Chapter 10, verse 19, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil. That is His flesh. That's talking about the breaking of His body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. And so what is the repercussion? Assurance. He says, with a sincere heart, with full assurance of faith, our our heart has been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies has been washed with pure water. Why does he say, our, and you might be thinking, well, our body's been washed with pure water. I didn't get any kind of ceremonial washing. Well, some would say, well, maybe this is a reference to baptism. But what he's really saying is that because of the blood of Jesus, you have been ceremonially qualified to draw near. In the old covenant, you couldn't. No matter how many hoops you jumped through, there was only one person who could fully draw near to God, and that was the high priest on the Day of Atonement once a year to go into the very holy of holies, into the very presence of God in representation of His people. But now, because of Jesus, we have all been given that access. We can all now, with a sincere heart, no more fake religion, what he's saying. No more just simply a formality, external performance. Now, with a sincere heart, actual re- religious life in your heart, the life of God in the soul of man, now you can draw near to God with full assurance of faith. The New Testament tells us that the types, the shadows, The figures of the past belong to the limitations of this age. But the sacrifice, the death, the resurrection of Jesus signals for us the glorious age to come. And that is the age to which we belong. So what are we doing now? We're waiting. Christ is waiting. And we are waiting. And we are waiting for all of His enemies to be put underneath His feet. In other words, we are victorious in Christ. Isn't this glorious? If you think about this, when things go awry, things go astray, persecution comes, and brothers and sisters, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but let me tell you, persecution is coming. And persecution in some part is already here. And if you don't have the new covenant realities that you triumph in Christ because of your being united to sacrifice, what's going to hold you together? I mean, just right now, I love confession time. I love basketball. Woo! I love me some basketball. (laughs) I am a die-hard, dangerous because I'm not in L.A., but I'm a die-hard Laker fan. But you know what the NBA just announced? That if North Carolina does not reverse the laws prohibiting transgender people from entering their bathroom of their choice, the NBA is going to pull out of North Carolina. They won't do the all-star game there. They won't fund anything there. And do you know that multiple, multiple artists have canceled their concerts and their tours to North Carolina and pulled out and said, we won't go there unless you change that law and you let that guy go into the bathroom with that little girl. This is how it's going to happen. The economic pressure will become debilitating. At work, your employer will tell you, you must attend a mandatory 
tolerance meeting so that we can educate you, right, as to the LGBTQ lifestyle and why not only you must tolerate it, but you must celebrate it, participate in it in, in the sense of you must align yourself with what they're doing. And will you go to that meeting? Will you undergo the sensitivity training that they're going to foist upon you? I, I tell you what, I mean, I'm excited that my wife is pregnant. I'm excited that we have a child on the way. But I tell you what, when I think, okay, maybe it's a girl. We don't know yet. When are we going to know, Trish? I don't know. You tell them later. <laughs> I'll be happy with whatever the Lord provides. The Lord would mercifully provide in the end. But if it's a little girl and then I see myself in the future, two, three, four-year-old little girl, maybe eight-year-old little girl needing to go to the bathroom really bad, and she walks in and a guy tries to walk in behind her over my dead body. I don't care what it costs me. My ministry, my money, my house, my life, over my dead body. That is what I would say. It won't happen on my watch. And you can do what you want and call what you want and get, get on Facebook and say what you want. But I think I resonate with a thousand or a million fathers out there that would say the exact same thing. Over my dead body, buddy. Right? We'll just go to the bathroom at home. Hold it. We'll go to the bathroom at home. But you see, the pressure is coming. And if you don't have truth to hold you together, not emotions, not circumstances, not uh, the fact that uh, Christianity is becoming more acceptable now to people and we're trying to make it more appealing and more trendy. Forget it. It's the truth that you are either in Christ or not in Christ. It's the truth that Christ has forgiven you of your sin, that you're one with Him, that you're going to be a co-heir with Him, that you're going to reign with Him. You either believe what the book says or you don't. I anticipate that this will coincide with a mass apostasy that's already happening, folks. Some of it on a church-wide level. Just last year, several pastors came out and foisted on their churches why they're changing their position, and now they're becoming open and affirming churches and basically saying to their congregations, if you don't like it, there's the door. And you know what's more appalling than that announcement? Is that hardly anybody walks out. Everybody just kind of, okay, well, as long as I can still drive my SUV and go to Costco and just kind of, you know, be a soccer mom and everything's cool, we'll just still hang out here. No, you shouldn't! Let me tell you something. Because you know I'm on my pedestal now, right? Let me tell you something. If Pastor Emilio or Pastor Chris ever even begins to hint at the idea that we are cracking the door open on the possibility that our church would even begin to think about changing anything in that direction, get up and walk out. Let's pray. Father, give your people courage. The book of Hebrews is all about enduring. The book of Hebrews is all about enduring suffering for being identified with Jesus Christ. And so, God, we pray, oh God, we ask that you would give us faith, that you would give us confidence, that you would give us endurance and perseverance that you would protect us and preserve us. It is not of our own power. It is your hand to keep and to protect. And we ask you, God, give us the faith, give us the strength to stand in the evil day for your glory and not to love our lives unto death. But help us, Lord, to commit our lives to you as a faithful creator because we know you're trustworthy because that's what your word declares. Oh, Father, I pray for every person in this church that are in Christ. Give them courage 
in this spineless age that we live in. Give them courage, God. It's time, Lord, for men to be men and women to be women, for men to lead their homes spiritually, to not be passive, not abdicate, to not be relegated to the proverbial garage, to not be a deadbeat dad, but to be a spiritual leader in their home with their wives, their complementary partner assisting them to run the home like a mini church under your authority and for your glory. So much work needs to be done. God, we confess we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.